Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast. I'm Sarah Hill, Associate Editor. Today's program is brought to you by Yetter Manufacturing. I'd like to take a moment to thank them for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Today, I'd like to introduce Jeff Betch, a researcher at Southern Research and Outreach Center in Wasika, Minnesota, and Anna Cates, Minnesota State Soil Health Specialist. Today, we'll be talking about the water quality benefits of cover crops. So welcome to the podcast, Jeff and Anna. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So to get us started, why don't you both tell us a little bit about yourself? Who wants to go first? Well, I'll start. I'm new here in Minnesota compared to Jeff. I've been in my role as state soil health specialist with Extension for a couple of years. My background is in research on organic matter storage and cycling in cropping systems. And so I'm interested in soil health for both the biological benefits and the agronomic benefits. I grew up in southeast Minnesota. I got my BS and MS at the U of M in soil science, working on my research interests and expertise are in soil fertility of corn and soybean with an emphasis on nitrogen management. As Anna said, I've been here a while. I've worked at the SROC here for 27 years and for the U of M for over 33 years. Wow. Sounds like you both are very knowledgeable. So with that, my first question relates to, let's start with general terms about how cover crops protect water quality. Well, I think their number one thing is that they provide this living cover for the soil for as long as you can get cover over the soil to protect it from erosion, both wind and water. And they also can sequester nutrients, which can reduce nitrogen or nutrient losses in tile drainage water or to groundwater. Okay. So in Minnesota and in the upper Midwest, how big of a problem is nutrient and sediment loss? And can cover crops work to actually reverse those problems? Yeah, I think sediment loss is a concern. We have a couple of water bodies that they're concerned about sediment loss in. Sediment loss above our acceptable level or what's referred to as T, it degrades the soil's productivity over time, which is a problem not only for the sustainability of agriculture, but for the grower. And then that sediment delivery to surface waters, it also delivers nutrients to the water, which contributes to eutrophication of the water body and things like the hypoxia zone in the Gulf of Mexico. And then of course, we are living in Minnesota in the land 10,000 lakes and the water turbidity that comes with sediment delivery also makes the water less desirable for recreational use and affects many of the fauna in the water. So the benefit of the cover crops is protecting that soil from erosion by having that living cover can reduce runoff by increasing infiltration and by using some of the water when the production crop is not growing, the cover crop can use some of that water. And then it can also increase soil organic matter and biological activity, which increases the soil's ability to retain those nutrients and keep them from running off into surface and groundwaters. Are there certain cover crop species that work better than others to serve as that armor on the soil? 
Sure. Uh, well, when you think about it, there's kind of two pieces to water quality. One is protecting the surface water, which means reducing overland flow and getting that surface cover that Jeff was talking about. Anything on the surface that's going to slow the water is going to help protect surface water quality. If you're talking about nutrient loss through the profile, especially nitrogen leaching, that's going to depend on root systems, how fast they develop and how much water and nutrients they take up. In Minnesota, we really depend on cereal rye because it's easy to establish in our colder falls, and it's really effective at scavenging those nutrients like nitrogen. As I'm sure you all are familiar, the state of Minnesota and other parts of the upper Midwest, the topography changes almost county by county in some areas. Are there certain types of topography where growers should not be as concerned about water quality and having cover crops? Or is this something that all growers, no matter what their topography looks like, should be concerned about? This is an interesting question because it's actually easier to answer the opposite question, which topographies should growers be especially worried in? We have a karst region in southeast Minnesota where water travels rapidly to groundwater and so do nutrients. And then you have steep topographies where overland water flow is greater and more of a danger. And then in flatter regions, the primary concern will be wind erosion, which can blow sediment into surface water. So I think that everyone everywhere has a water quality concern. It's just variable with the landscape depending where you are. Fair enough. Let's talk a little bit about how cover crops work to increase water infiltration. And Jeff, I think you kind of alluded to this earlier when you were talking about the root systems and that type of thing. Well, a meta-analysis from across the globe found that cover crops increase infiltration rate by about 40%, which is probably twofold. So it's a combination of roots making macropores and building that soil structure that adds to that increase in infiltration. So throughout the soil, are cover crops helpful just with holding down that top soil and kind of serving as that armor on the top? Or is there an impact by those cover crops throughout the soil profile? Well, it probably depends on your cover crop species. Certainly for erosion, we're most worried about topsoil. We're not losing our subsoil to erosion significantly. So I would say that when you're thinking about holding nutrients in the profile, though, if you have deeper roots, you're going to be collecting more nutrients from deeper in the profile. So once again, it's going to depend on how fast those roots develop and what their structure is. What might be some examples of cover crop species that are good at building those roots quickly and building a very complex root system? Anything that grows quickly above ground is going to be growing quickly below ground also. So for us in Minnesota, we do focus on these cold season grasses that can establish well in the fall, things like oats and cereal rye. Annual ryegrass also has a really robust root system, but isn't quite as good for our cold winters. Anything else you'd add, Jeff? No, I think that covers it. I think sometimes we have concerns about compaction in our heavy, dense soils and on our glacial till soils in Minnesota. So tillage radish, it takes a little longer to establish, but it does have a big tap root and that can help break up compaction, which can be beneficial. Sure. Great. When growers are using cover crops, perhaps with the goal of improving water quality, are there any disadvantages at all? There is actually an interesting phosphorus story in a cold climate. When your cover crop is growing, it's accumulating some phosphorus in its biomass. And then when the plant tissue freezes, that phosphorus can be released. The cells are breaking down and that soluble mobile phosphorus is released. 
We really don't know yet whether that mobile phosphorus loss from the cover crop tissue is going to be greater or lesser than the phosphorus retained in sediment because of the lack of erosion. That's going to be really context dependent and really requires more research. So there's maybe a trade-off there. And then there are some soils and situations where grass cover crops, things like cereal rye or oats, can interact with nitrogen management in corn or in our cereal grain crops and actually result in greater end rates needed to optimize yield. So that can potentially be a negative, not necessarily to water quality, but if you have to use more fertilizer to get the same yield, that could be a potential problem. Very good. So some growers might use cover crops with the goal of sequestering more carbon. Does that impact or influence water quality at all? Kind of a million dollar question still, I would say, Sarah. We're trying to understand exactly how much water organic matter holds. There's a chain of events by which building organic matter is going to affect soil water use, though. And that's because soil organic matter holds soil aggregates together. And when you have soil aggregates, then you can increase infiltration by having large pores around them and increase water holding capacity because of small pores inside of aggregates. So as you're adding organic matter with the cover crops, you're also building soil structure, which is holding carbon around for longer. So yes, you anticipate that these benefits are happening at the same time, but their interrelationship and especially their numerical relationship, I would say, is very much to be determined. Fantastic. This may not be as much of a problem in Minnesota necessarily, but I know we have some listeners who live in more arid regions where water may be more scarce than it is in Minnesota. But there's sometimes is a concern in those arid regions that using cover crops might use some of that soil moisture that they desperately need for cash crops. In both of your experience, do cover crops really take up that much soil moisture? And is this concern really something to be worried about? Yeah, I think in regions where water is more scarce, especially like the Western Plains states and the Western Corn Belt, growers maybe need to monitor their cover crop growth and maybe even terminate early if water is scarce in the spring, if they leave those cover crops grow till spring. And then I think the other key thing, and maybe Anna can address this, is there's some cover crop species that transpire a lot less water than others. And then there's also this trade-off between water use by a cover crop and having a surface cover on the soil, soil surface, which is actually protecting or reducing evaporation that would occur if we didn't have that cover crop on the surface. So some of the data is now completely clear about how much water use we have and whether or not it is a significant factor. But certainly in those water scarce states, it is a concern. Yeah, I think Jeff had the perfect point there in terms of saying growers need to monitor that cover crop growth. There's a lot of adaptive management with cover crops and that fits with water also. In a dry year, you probably are not going to want your cover crop to take up as much water. In a wet year, you're going to be excited to let it grow as long as possible and keep sucking water out of that soil profile. And of course, cover crops are going to grow more in a warm, wet year than they are in a cool, dry year. So their ability to take up water also is just going to be seasonally dependent. Sure. So what would be your recommendation to growers about how do they track that moisture level and make sure that the cover crops aren't taking too much moisture? I think like Jeff said, if you're looking at a dry spring and looking at planting within a couple of weeks and feeling like your soil moisture status is low, that might be a time to terminate. Is that how you would do it, Jeff? Yeah, I think you just monitor your rainfall. And if your rainfall is significantly less than normal, then you'd be concerned about using too much water prior to that planting season. 
Kind of as a follow-up to the previous question, in the spring, sometimes cover crops may be keeping the soil cooler, but that sometimes works at cross purposes because in the spring, usually growers are wanting the soil to heat up faster so they can get in the field quicker and get those cash crops planted. So what would be the recommendation to growers about how to handle that situation? They still want those benefits of cover crops, but at the same time, they want to make sure that that soil is able to really heat up in the spring like it should. That is a real tension, and in our cold climate, we definitely see growers struggling with that every year. The growers I see who are really experienced with cover crops, again, adapt to the conditions. One way that people change their systems to account for that is to use a strip-till cover crop system, where they can have a black strip of soil that is warming up and get the benefits of the cover crop infiltration and water storage in most of the land. Jeff, any other management strategies you would bring up? No, I think those two are the most important. And as you mentioned earlier, Anna, that adaptive management, I think anytime you have cover crops or no-till or very reduced till systems, being ready to adapt and change on the fly is going to be important. Sometimes that's more challenging for growers than others, of course. So let's talk a little bit about improving soil drainage and that infiltrations. What are some of the different physical, chemical, or biological properties of cover crops that might improve that drainage in the soil? I think the key thing is the physical properties. Anything that we can do that improves soil structure is going to increase infiltration and case saturation and have an impact on drainage. From a chemical standpoint, though, actually soil drainage can reduce salinity in certain environments, northwestern Corn Belt, where we have salinity issues. Salinity is a negative soil chemical property, so drainage can actually benefit that. And from a biological activity standpoint, biological activity increases earthworm activity, it creates more macropores, and those are the things that are really going to improve drainage along with those physical properties in that soil structure and increasing infiltration. While we're talking about water quality and using cover crops to improve water quality, of course, one of the top of mind issues for growers usually is maintaining profitability. And how do cover crops influence that profitability and water quality as well? Well, the profitability is a really important piece. I think that focusing on profitability versus focusing on yields is important in these conservation systems. Often we don't see increases in yields, but we do see increases in profitability. And that has to do with uh, reduced inputs of other kinds. Cover crops tend to be profitable when they're paired with other changes, in particular with reduced tillage, tillage being a huge expense of both time and money for growers. We also sometimes see potential changes in weed control, weed management, and fertility, but those tend to be down the line. You can't really count on them in the same way. But I would say growing from a full tillage, no cover crop system to a reduced tillage cover crop system, I've seen evidence that that can be an increase in profitability for growers. One of the hangups that growers sometimes have with cover crops is that it takes a few years to really start to see some of those long-term benefits, particularly when it comes to the soil. So can you give us some insight as to why it takes so long for growers to see those changes and maybe things that they can do to measure their progress? And maybe if they can't see the benefits, still know, okay, these cover crops are having a positive impact. I think that there's certain things that do change fairly quickly 
but you're right. There's others that do not. And growers can be impatient. They may not see these benefits right away. One of our colleagues talks a lot about how cover crops in combination with a change to more conservation tillage or reduced tillage, they can kind of work together to speed up those changes. And I think that can be a possibility. But things that are going to happen quicker is things like soil structure and greater macropores. They can develop in a few years or maybe even less. Soil structure can improve maybe in as much as a year or two. But then things like soil organic matter, building soil organic matter and things like that are going to take more time and growers are going to have to be patient. Kind of back to the question prior, those types of things, those long-term things of what can build sustainability and improve the quality of those acres. And that can really enhance yield production or yield and productivity in the future. And that could be where the profitability comes from. Yeah, and there's certainly a a patience aspect to this. I think the growers who are really successful are often really motivated by the long-term future of their land. They're thinking about their children and their grandchildren farming on this land, or even if it's not their children, they feel a responsibility to leave the land better than they found it. So I think a lot of growers who are doing cover crops are motivated by that long-term change, understanding that it, it may take a while for the land to deeply change, and just hoping to maintain profitability at the same level during the course of transition. Some growers, not all, but some have added livestock as kind of the third step to their use of cover crops and reduced tillage. So let's talk a little bit about how does adding livestock to the system influence water quality? Well, I think that it provides an opportunity to grow more forages. And whenever we put perennials on the landscape, the majority of them, especially perennial forages, are going to be a benefit to water quality compared to row crops. However, though, a lot of dairy and beef operations often feed corn silage, especially the larger ones. There is an opportunity for a cover crop after corn silage harvest. It can really benefit water quality and it can benefit soil health instead of leaving that field bare. But I think that the primary benefit of bringing the livestock in is that it provides a potential, especially not so much in this northern part of the Corn Belt where we have a little shorter season to establish cover crops. But when you get in the central Corn Belt and the Mid-South where they've got an opportunity to maybe put cattle on these cover crop forages and get that benefit from them. Right. And there was a SARE study that showed that when you are growing your cover crops for forages, when you account for their feed value, then they become profitable right away. You have a much greater opportunity to make money on your cover crops if you're feeding them out. Kind of along those same lines, talking about profitability, one of the hardest things for growers to balance is the costs of cover crop seeding and termination compared with the improvement in water and soil quality. So how can growers quantify that water quality from an economic perspective? That's kind of a hard question for two physical soil scientists to answer, I would say. But one thing I sometimes think about when we look at these conservation systems is that there are private benefits to the grower, which is most of what we've talked about, profitability in their operation or water management improving the land. But there are also these public benefits. And water quality is really a public benefit for everyone. And that's why the government is putting a lot of money into nutrient reduction strategies throughout the Mississippi Basin. 
And why on a county level, there's a lot of cost share available for these cover crops. So to answer that question, you might almost go to your local NRCS or Soil and Water Conservation District office and ask them what the cost share available is for cover crops. That's what it's worth to that local entity. For an individual grower, I think it's going to be more amorphous. It's uh, worth whatever their time on the lake is worth. It's worth whatever their pride in being part of water quality solution is worth. And I think it's worth a lot to a lot of growers. This is kind of a follow-up to my previous question. Anna, your response leads right into it. For growers who maybe don't live close to a large lake or to a big river, they might say, well, do I really need to be worried about water quality because I don't live close to a major body of water? Should growers who live farther away from major bodies of water, is water quality still something that they need to be concerned about and taken care of? I think yes. And I think part of what Anna alluded to is is that feeling good about leaving that land better than you found it or as good as when you acquired it or handing it down to your kids and your grandkids in a better condition. And then also, I don't know too many farmers or landowners in the Midwest here. So much of our land is rented and we have lots of landowners and lots of renters, but most of them are concerned about water quality and soil degradation and these things. And they want to do the right thing for the most part. I would agree. There are not a lot of bad actors out there that sometimes they get portrayed as the real problem. But I would say most farmers on an individual level are as concerned about water quality as anybody. Okay. Shifting gears here, are there certain types of soil that benefit from cover crop use? Or is it just those highly erodible soils that seem to benefit the most from cover crop use? Well, I think it's not always just about the soils, Uh, certainly the highly erodible ones and ones that are very permeable that leaching is a big problem on are certainly concerned, but it's also about cropping systems. I think monocultures and other cropping systems that leave little residue on the soil surface and cropping systems like our vegetable crops that are harvested in the midsummer or late summer that leave a long-term fallow on the field. Those are kind of our cropping systems that we need to really pay attention to. And those are the ones that can have the best benefit by using a cover crop from a water quality standpoint and from a soil health standpoint. And it's ones that it's easy to do because you've got the time and it's kind of out of season of some of your other crops. Yeah, that's a great point, Jeff. It really is about this whole system in terms of protecting water quality. My last question here relates to termination of cover crops. Are there certain termination methods that influence water quality or maybe have an impact? And if so, which termination methods are better for water quality? I think this is really a region-specific question. I guess here in the Midwest, we probably have termination as one of two ways, either by herbicides in the springtime or by cold temperatures in the fall and winter, depending upon what the species of cover crops are growing. And in my research, I found that leaving that cover crop grow till spring and terminating it with herbicides in the spring was going to be better for water quality. For many growers in the Mid-South, they probably have the opportunity to roll them, which is going to give them some not only uh, really good cover from a soil health standpoint and water quality minimizing runoff, but also maybe gives them some weed control protection as well. So it's going to depend upon the region of the country and how much biomass they've produced and what's the best method to terminate. Yeah, termination definitely gets back to that question of biomass. The more biomass you grow, the more nutrients you're going to take up, the more water you're going to take up. And so in our case, we're just kind of fighting the clock, trying to get every day of growth we can before termination to build biomass. 
Before we wrap up here, where can our listeners go for more information about water quality and soil quality in regards to cover crops? Well, I think their local university extension offices are a great place to start. As Anna mentioned, the NRCS offices, finding out what dollars are available for helping them to get started. And then we've got some really good websites like the Soil Health Institute. And there's a lot of good ag publications that talk about cover crops, uh, including yours. And I think all those are opportunities. Yeah, there's also active conservation ag groups on social media, including Facebook and Twitter. And hopefully in that way, if they don't have near neighbors who are doing practices they want to try, they could find some neighbors far away who are doing practices they can ask questions about. Fantastic. Well, that's all the time that we have for today on our podcast. Thanks again, Jeff and Anna, so much for joining us. For all information about cover crops, visit us online at covercropstrategies.com. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in today. We'd also like to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's program. For more information about all things cover crops, visit us online at www.covercropstrategies.com.